last Sunday we talked a little bit and shared a, little, a few thoughts together in terms of when events happen, major events in the world, it's a little bit like taking a large stone or rock and tossing it into a pond and then all the ripples go out from that. So I think if we look back on the events that have transpired just in the last week, we see the ripple effect of the, um, and we have to be careful of the words we use here because there was a targeted killing of the uh, leader of uh, Revolutionary Guard, uh, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, uh, Qasem Soleimani, and we're familiar with that event that happened. We talked about that last Sunday. But, of course, what we couldn't foresee is all the possible consequences of that or side effects, which we knew there would be many, but we didn't know exactly what they would be. We felt that there would be a retaliation from Iran on that. We thought that would happen. And of course, we know that that did happen. And yet exactly um, how it would occur, we were uncertain of, of course. Now, when we talk about ripple effects and side effects of things like major events that happen, uh, that doesn't mean that the original event or initial event is... um, responsible directly for all those others because there are decisions at every level. For example, you could argue that the event that happened in the taking out, if you like, or the targeted killing of Soleimani, that that was a ripple too. You see, you could say that that was a ripple of previous events, right? So that wasn't the really the beginning of all of this, but that was a consequence of previous events. One of the things that was a ripple effect, and this was very unforeseen, was the shooting down of a civilian aircraft, airplane, with I think 176 souls on board. And I believe of that number, the number has been revised to 57 Canadian citizens, Iranian Canadians, but they're Canadian citizens. Also on board were a large number of individuals from um, Iran itself, and many of them are students. Many of these uh, many of these individuals on the airplane were students. And so, what's happening now, even this morning as we discuss this, is that there is a protest developing. Protests are developing within Iran. And there have been protests over the years in Iran. Much, Many of them have been student-led. And many lives have been lost in protesting against the Iranian regime. It's very, very dangerous to do that. In fact, there's reports that there have been something like 1,500 people who have lost their lives recently in the last few months in protests. But what this event has done, the retaliation of the Iranian regime to the death of their general as um, and of course they anticipated an American response to that which didn't happen in the way that they had thought and it turns out that that lack of or, or decision not to respond militarily to the Iranian missiles that were launched against uh, American targets in Iraq it turns out to be a very wise decision on the part of the president very wise I think under the circumstances And there were many voices calling for a response. 
But the, the mystifying thing is that during all of this, the Iranian launching of missiles into Iraq and apparently their heightened alert and they were on guard because they expected an American response to this and that they would allow civilian aircraft to fly during this entire time. That's very mystifying. And so this has been reported early on that this was the unintended shooting down by mistake of a Ukrainian uh, jet, civilian airliner. And, of course, we can't say that with certainty because we don't know. It appears as if it was unintended, but I, for one, would never say it was unintended. And I think our prime minister has uh, hesitated to say it was unintended. And he has said it needs to be shown or, or proven or disclosed more fully whether it was unintended or not. And I think that was wise for him to say that. We don't know. I don't want to say it was, but I cannot say that it was not. Because it's highly unusual if you're in a state of uh, heightened anticipation being the Iranians and the Revolutionary Guard, and you're in a state of heightened anticipation of an attack that you would allow these civilian airlines to continue to come to to fly. And why would you do that? Why would you do that? Unless you, you know, then your mind leaps to all these possible uh, answers and you don't know for, with certainty. But perhaps you want to use them as some kind of shield. Perhaps, perhaps their presence in the sky, perhaps their presence in the sky, you can use that to your advantage. Who knows what it is? But the point is, as a result of all this, is that uh, the Iranians, the Iranian regime and the Revolutionary Guard have been exposed by this. And there is an opportunity in Iran right now for uh, revolt uh, against the regime. There's opportunity right now. They're in a vulnerable position. The world is looking at them and realizing that they actually their initial response to anything is that they will lie if they can. They will lie their way out of it, and if they can't, they will grudgingly admit to the truth, but then say, but if it hadn't have been for what somebody else did, we wouldn't have done what we did. <laughs> so it's it's hardly an admission or a confession. So in any event, they're in a very weakened, the regime is in a weakened position and posture right now. There's no question about that. Both internally and externally, the world is looking at them, in a way the world hasn't looked at them for a long time. Meanwhile, the division within the United States of America in terms of the political division is so pronounced and extreme that the talking points of the Iranian regime are basically kind of compatible and synchronized with the talking points of some of the partisan opposition within the United States of America's uh, <coughs> governmental bodies. And this is mind-numbing. This is mind-numbing. At all times, this is a time when there could be change within Iran. If there ever was a time for change in Iran, it's right now. And yet to be divided against the possibility of that change by impeaching, by impeaching and criticizing your own chief executive is just almost impossible to understand. So that's what's happening. All those things are happening. And so um, I want this morning to, uh, 
to simply come and read a passage of scripture with you, I believe that refreshes our souls, refreshes our understanding. I have looked for explanations of why people do what they do and think the way they think and act the way they act. And whenever I look for an explanation for these kinds of things by intelligent people, I always come back to human humanist manifestos. I always, I'm always brought back there. I'm always brought back to the humanist manifestos that began in about 1933. I think the second one was 1973. And there's been about four or if not five by now. It's difficult to keep track, but very significant ones beginning in 1933. Again, the second one, 1973. And then subsequent to that, there have been further releases of humanist manifestos. And what I find in them is an ideology and a way of looking at the world that I think explains the division of, of belief and, and um, attitude under, and understanding that exists now. And for the most part, these manifestos, and I would say that a large percentage of so-called professional people within Western societies are adherents of these manifestos. And I have read them to you in the past, and I'll not do that again this morning. But one of the things that comes from them is the idea of being non-theist, non-theist. And meaning that don't believe in a god. They don't believe in God. They don't believe in a supreme being. And if they believe in divinity, they believe that divinity resides within themselves, that divinity resides within human beings, that if you want to talk about divine, the divine spark is in you. And this is what they believe. And then further to that, then there is no creed, there is no law that exists outside of you that can tell you the way you should live your lives. Well, they believe in civil law up to a point, but the civil law as described and expressed and written by them and people who think the way they do. So one of the things that keeps reappearing in these human, humanist manifestos is the idea of ethics. Of course, they talk about many different, many different pathways in terms of human expression. But ethics comes into it, and they talk about ethics as being situational and autonomous. In other words, that ethics are up to you. What you decide and determine to be right and wrong has to uh, come forth with, with, uh, from within you. Because there is no, um, there is no you, you talk about the Bible, and you say this was inspired. They don't believe in any of that. They don't believe that there's any such thing as revelation spiritual revelation from a supreme being, from the God. Don't believe in in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so ethics then become something that are situational. In other words, it depends on the situation or circumstance whether something is ethical or right to do or not. Well, now, you give yourself license now. You give yourself license to actually... Uh, satisfy this expression where the end justifies the means. In other words, whatever you think is the most is the is is worthy of accomplishment, then you are licensed or authorized to do whatever ne- is necessary to accomplish that, and you decide what it is, because you are the supreme being. So you decide what is uh, what is worthy of accomplishment, 
and then you decide what means or steps you should take to accomplish it. And if you think about this, as difficult as it is for a Bible-believing Christian to wrap their minds around this, this is the kind of thinking that floods our institutions of higher learning. That's what it is. And that's why you see the change in so-called the sexual revolution or the idea of same-sex marriage or transgenderism or any of these things. They all derive from this ideology. And I think you see that happening now in the political arena. And I think that's what explains this wild... um, Almost well, it is a self-destructive tendency to change leaders and to change leaders. Now I hear, and I hesitate to say much of this. Well, let me back up on this. I really don't hesitate; otherwise, I wouldn't say it. So the business of hesitating—let's forget about the hesitating. It's too late in the day to be hesitating. I'm just going to say it. People are not obliged to believe something just because I say it. But I have an obligation to say things that I see. It's up to everybody else to decide what they'll do with it, right? This is what freedom is. You're entirely free to receive it or not to receive it. That's up to you what you do with it. But we have an obligation to speak the truth as we see it. Are we infallible? No. But I want to share with you something that I see that... um, I think is a value. And I hear this expression being used by in our neighbors to the South in terms of Republicans and supporters of the President of the United States. And they say that the opposition hates Donald Trump so much that they do this or they do that or they do the other. In other words, that there would appear sometimes to be irrational actions are a consequence of their hatred for Donald Trump. I don't agree with that. I don't see it that way at all. I don't think they hate Donald Trump. I think under different circumstances, they actually love Donald Trump. And I think they loved Donald Trump long before he became president of the United States. And I think if he had different policies, then they would find him uh, somebody that they could endorse. Some of the people who have acted in opposition to President Trump, actually attended his wedding and were guests at his wedding. And no problem with him at all. Many of them, if not all of them, had no problem in going to him and asking for contributions to their political campaigns before he became a candidate himself. They had no problem at all. So it isn't essentially Donald Trump that they hate. It's what he represents and what he stands for and what he opposes that they hate. That's what they hate. They hate the fact that he stands in opposition to them in achieving the objectives that they believe that they are sovereignly endowed to hold and to use any means necessary to accomplish. And if you look at humanist manifestos, you'll find authority to conduct yourself that way. Absolutely. And any other issue, and I won't get into them all this morning, But any other issue, if you want to talk about medical assistance in dying or medical assistance in death, or as I refer to it as assisted suicide, if they are correct in their philosophy and understanding, if they are right in this, 
then they have every right to do that. But I don't believe they are correct. I believe they are in error. I believe they are in serious, gross error and have no right at all to do that because they are in such error. Why do I believe that? Well, I believe that the Bible is inspired. It is the gift of God and it is the word of God to us. And I believe that the Holy Spirit himself actually reveals its contents to us so that we can understand it. I believe that as the word, as he does that, and as we read it, and as he teaches it to us, as we read it, I believe that we are uh, changed and transformed by the word that it gives us. It's a living word. That's what I believe. So I'm going to read some of it to you right now. And just just briefly, just read a little bit to you today. So I'm going to read to you the last from the closing part of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, which we talked about a little bit that letter last Sunday. But I'll read this closing portion, and it is uh, headed in your Bibles as the whole armor of God, that there is armor that God provides. And uh, it's, it's so many different pieces of armor, just as a suit of armor has different pieces. Then God provides armor for us, and uh, we should um, apply all this armor that he gives. So here it is. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. Finally, my brothers, I love the way he addresses his audience or the people to whom he is writing here as his brothers. Sometimes Paul would refer to those as his children, you know, in the, in the, in the gospel. But here he says, my brothers, which essentially is what we are. There's a brotherhood. He says, finally, my brothers, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Put it all on. Every bit of it, put it on. All of it. Don't leave any of it without putting it on. Don't just read it. Don't just be aware that it exists. But apply it and put it on. Put it on. That's what he's saying. Put it on. You're going to need it. And I want to say that this morning, that we should put it all on because we need it. So he said, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. A lot of the wiles of the devil are not obvious things, but they are hidden. They are trickery. They are sly. They appear to be something that they're not. Right? The wiles of the devil. They are strategies that he employs. And he says, you have to be defended against these things. And you have to put on this armor to be so defended. He said, because, or for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. You might remember last Sunday I said to you that the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the provision that he made for our salvation and for our eternal destiny is was also made for a man named Qasem Suleimani. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. He's not a respecter of persons when he made this provision. Now, I know that there are people who say that there are elect and he made the provision for the elect and just for them and so on. When There's different ways of looking at it. And I understand and respect some of these individuals, but I do believe that the scripture says 
that when he made the provision, he made the provision for all. But there are not all that will not accept it. All will not receive it. So he said again, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So our adversaries are not entirely or not simply natural human beings. And the enemies here in all of these conflicts and all of these things we're talking about and all these events and all these ripples that go out from events that that happen in time and space are not just engineered and designed by human beings or flesh and blood. And what was energizing and instructing a man like Qasem Soleimani is not just natural, not just flesh and blood influence. And this is absolutely essential for us to understand. But the humanist manifesto adherent cannot believe that, cannot understand that, because he doesn't believe that that realm exists. He said we wrestle against principalities, against powers, and against world's rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, all of this involves... All of this involves um, human agencies. Sometimes they're governmental. Sometimes they're philosophical and sometimes they're educational. But underneath and behind these human agencies is a spiritual influence that is malevolent, meaning it's evil and it's satanic. And these are the things we wrestle against. And these are the things that we need to be protected against. He said, therefore, take to yourselves the whole armor of God. Because of all of this, take to yourselves the whole armor of God. I don't believe that we can understand what's happening around us in the society. As a Canadian, I cannot understand fully what's happening in Canada, the laws that are changing in our country, and the reasons behind the changing of those laws. I cannot understand that nor can I adjust appropriately to those laws and those changes, nor can I take a stance on terms of voting for those who are running for political office and to make an educated uh, decision, a well-informed decision about whom I will support. I cannot do that without understanding this dynamic. Nor can I criticize and find fault with the decisions that are being made by these individuals without understanding this dynamic. And this is why I believe one of the reasons why we are instructed to pray for those who have the leadership over us. The praying for those who have leaders are in positions of leadership is not just to pray for their success because many times their agendas should not be successful. They're evil evil, uh, plans and proposals. But we pray that they will be delivered from the evil influence to the extent that an evil influence motivates and instructs their decisions. We pray that they would be delivered from that. This is why we pray for them. The ultimate reason why we pray is that we would have a quiet and peaceable civil society within which we could live and work and raise our families and proclaim the gospel. Right? That's the reason. That's the reason. And we pray that way for Iran. And we pray that way for Iraq and all the countries 
that we are concerned about and we pray that way for our own country and for our neighbors as well. So again, he said, that, therefore, take to yourselves the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. In the evil day is the day or the period of time within which evil is being manifested and it's those who are influenced by the evil are expressing the ideology that derives from the evil source. That's the evil day. And so many people are swept away with that evil day. Christians are being swept away by the evil day. We have a, apparently within the Methodist Church, United Methodist Church, we have a decision. Apparently, if we believe the reports, that there will be a vote sometime later this year on dividing the church on the subject of same-sex marriage between those who are in agreement with it and those who are not in agreement with it. And those who are in agreement will be in this version of the church and those who oppose it will be in the other version of the church. And those who agree with it are people who are up to their eyebrows in humanist manifesto philosophy and understanding. That's who they are. And there are many Christians who are being influenced in such a way as to not to see the evil in it. Don't see the evil in it. For example, if somebody takes a position with regards to their family, that they just want to be at peace within their families. Because these issues and these this ideology is influencing and affecting individuals within families. It's affecting individuals within my family. It's affecting individuals within your family. And it's affecting you. And you have to find a way to deal with these things. You can't just say, well, I'm not affected by any of this. You are. You absolutely are. And you have to take a position. What position will you take? And the position that you'll take is determined by the kind of armor that you have on. And if you don't have the kind of armor on that the apostle is describing, you will be swept away by an evil ideology without even realizing it. You will think that you're a loving person. And you will think that you are sowing peace and being a peaceful person within your society and within your family. What you're, what you're being is you're being a dead fish that is being swept down by the current of the river. That's what you are. You're a dead fish swept by the current of the river. Only a live fish can swim against the current of the river. Only a live one can. And the live one has the whole armor of God on. Dead one does not. He said, I, I'm going to read this verse maybe for the third or fourth time, but that's okay. Therefore, take to yourselves the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand, withstand. In the, see, I mean, listen. When you're withstanding something, right? You're withstanding something. You're feeling it. You're processing it. You're being affected by it. If you go out into a, into a day where the wind is blowing a, strongly and you have to withstand the wind as you walk to the mailbox or wherever you walk, you withstand it, you lean against it, you stand against it, you catch your balance against it, 
It's be, you're being affected by it. If you didn't withstand it, you'd just be staggering <laughs> as, it, as it directed you. There's many things in life that we have to withstand. Temptation is something that needs to be withstood. Every kind of influence that is evil needs to be withstood. And he said that you may put on this whole armor so that you may withstand in the evil day. And having done all, done it all, to stand. What are you doing? I'm standing. (laughs) What? (laughs) Standing is not a passive thing. Standing is a very active thing. Because to stand, you need to withstand many things. You need to stand against them. You need to oppose them and you need to say no to them. And if you don't oppose them and say no to them, you're not withstanding them. You're going to be swept by them. That's what he's talking about. This is true to his experience. This is true to our experience. We know that these things are true if the Spirit of the Lord has ever revealed Himself to us at all. And if He teaches us, we know that these things are true. And somebody might say, well, I was withstanding for a long time and I grew tired and I grew weary of withstanding. And everything was falling apart around me. I feel like I realize that in many things are falling apart around me. I know that. But you know what I'm saying to them? If you want to fall apart, go ahead. But I'm not going to fall apart. I'm going to stand. And I'm going to stand against you, influence you, not human beings, but you and influence sometimes that is directing human beings. And human beings may say, well, you're not a very loving person. My answer would be, if I didn't withstand you, you could say I don't love you. But because I withstand you, the reason is because I love you. And I love someone more than I love you. And that is the truth of God's word as revealed by his word and spirit. I love him most. I love him supremely. I want you too to love him supremely. But if I accept you the way you want me to, then what influence could be brought against you that would cause you to change? There has to be an influence that prompts and and encourages you to change. You say, why should you change? You should change because you're being swept along by principalities and powers and by an evil influence that does not originate with flesh and blood. So again he said, uh, stand, just stand. He said, stand therefore, stand, having your loins girded about with truth. Truth, oh, the truth. To love the truth, to embrace the truth. You see, there's people who are being given over to a perverse mind because they don't love the truth. You say, well, people are just being swept away and they're being, they're being uh, 
misled by lies and error. And there's not a thing they can do about it. Oh, yes, there is. There's no one who's being swept away by lies and error who can't do anything about it. say, well, what do they do to prevent themselves from being swept away? They just love the truth. Why not just say, you know, as a regular part of your prayer life, when things, especially when things become very confusing to you, why not just get on your knees before the Lord and just say, Lord, I love you. I love your word. I know it is pure and so beautiful and wonderful. And uh, I love your truth. I just love your truth. Sometimes I'm Sometimes I don't know what to think about certain things, Lord. Show me your truth, O Lord. Keep me, Lord. Keep me from making the decisions that would be that would alienate me from your truth. Reveal your truth to me, O Lord. Show me your truth, Lord. Lord, Lord, I put myself into your custody. I'm in your hand. Don't let anything happen to me. It is in opposition to your will. Don't allow me to be swept away, Lord. Because I placed myself in your custody, Lord. And I'm asking you to take control so that nothing can occur to me that is outside of your will. Why not do that? That's the part of our responsibility to do that. And as we do that, we will not be swept away he will reveal himself to us and instruct us in the way we should go. And this is, this is having your loins girded about with truth. And it says, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. Rightness. This is not sinning in thought, word, and deed on a daily basis. This is not living in sin. Somebody said, do you think you never sin? No, I didn't say that. When we sin, we must confess it as sin. Say, well, how do you know if you've sinned? The Holy Spirit will reveal it to us in those times of intimacy and prayer before the Lord. The Holy Spirit will reveal to us those things in us that are not right. Absolutely, He will. He absolutely will. There's no question about it. When He does, this then this is important. When He makes that revelation to us, we must make certain that we don't excuse it away but confess it. In the blood of Jesus Christ, which is this continual, constant, clean cleansing and restorative, will cleanse us from all sin. Forgive us. Cleanse us from all sin. So this is the breastplate of righteousness. It says, And on your feet, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And so this is the way we walk in the world in a way that represents and promotes the gospel. Above all, it says, take the shield of faith. In other words, to cover everything, take the shield of faith with which you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. The shield of faith. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then he says, praying always with all prayer. This is beautiful. Praying always on every occasion, in every circumstance, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Don't just 
have a little ritual prayer. Don't have a ritual prayer. Have regular, pray routinely, but not ritual prayer. Supplication in the spirit. Sometimes we need to. Uh, sometimes we need to come before the Lord and just wait upon Him. And just be quiet before Him, and just have that kind of conversation that I alluded to earlier, before we're ready to move into a time of prayer. There must be a visitation and a communion that we experience, which permits us actually to prayer, in supplication. He said, prayer and, and supplication in the spirit and watching to this very thing with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. This is where we pray for each other. We intercede for each other, not just for ourselves. This is where the spirit brings others to our minds and understanding and awareness as we come into the spirit of prayer. He says, and pray for me. Isn't that beautiful? The apostle, he said, and pray for me, that utterance may be given to me. Because what he's saying is, he's saying that he has been called as a mouthpiece. He's been called as an apostle, which is a special messenger, and he has a special message. And that special message that he has must be presented. It must be spoken. He said, pray for me. That utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. It's hidden. You see, it's hidden from people. They can't see it. But when I make it known boldly, as the Spirit allows me to proclaim it boldly, then their eyes will be opened. Their eyes can be opened to see it. So pray for me that I may do this as I ought to, he said. He knew, let me just say, he knew what he was talking about. He knew what he was writing about. He experienced every one of these things himself. He had to withstand onslaughts that we, with all due respect, know nothing about. But you know about onslaughts that you need to stand against. I'm going to read verse 19 and 20 again. He said, And pray for me that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly, to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds so that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And then he has some final greetings and we'll close our thoughts together with these final greetings from the apostle. He says, but so that you may know my affairs and how I I do, uh, Tychicus, a beloved brother, and a faithful minister in the Lord shall make known to you all things, whom I have sent to you for the same purpose, that you might know our affairs and that he might comfort your hearts. Peace to the brothers. And love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. And some who have named their ministry Grace to You. Grace to You, which is a lovely name for a ministry of the gospel, have taken the inspiration from these words, Ephesians 6.24, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. So that's like saying grace to you. 
And so let me just close by saying grace to you all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may his peace be with you and his protection. But that happens as you put on all the armor that he makes available to us. Can I just mention something that I probably should have mentioned at the beginning? In verse uh, 12 of Ephesians 6 and verse 12, where he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Let me close this with this thought, which comes from many of the different, for example, uh, translations of the original manuscripts or the ancient manuscripts, I should say. We don't have the original manuscripts, but we have some very ancient manuscripts, copies of the original. And we have them in so many different languages throughout the world. And many of them say it this way, for you do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers. It doesn't say, as many of our, our translations say, for we do not. I mean, the idea is essentially the same. But what it does is it personalizes it just perhaps a little bit more and says, for you do not wrestle. So can I close it and just maybe take a reading from some of the Arabic translations, for example. For you do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the world's rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual wickedness in high places.